state of cyber attacks in the UK. NIST's proposed privacy framework kicks off. And US voter registration data for sale on the dark web. These stories and more in this week's ISMG Security. Hello, I'm Nick Holland. The UK government's incident response teams have investigated more than 1,000 significant incidents in the past two years. That works out to more than 10 incidents per week targeting UK organisations, the majority of which appear to trace to nation-state attackers. Here's ISMG's executive editor, Data Breach Today and Europe, Matt Schwartz with the details. The British government's approach to combating cyber attacks shows not just the scale of the problem affecting the UK, but also demonstrates techniques that other countries should consider adopting as they too battle online attacks. Over the past two years, the UK's National Incident Response Team has tracked more than 2,000 cyber attacks, of which about half merited further investigation. That works out to about 10 serious attacks being investigated weekly by the UK's National Cybersecurity Centre. Paul Chichester, the NCSD's Director of Operations, says that volume of attacks isn't surprising. Cyber attacks are a major threat. Uh, The volume and range we see is certainly huge, but they're on a trajectory that hasn't surprised us. Uh, There are a wide range of nation-state and criminal actors targeting every country. Uh, The number of sophisticated actors is certainly increasing, and cyber attacks are seen as a good way of pursuing criminal and national interests. Our job is to make the UK the hardest target possible. Unusually, the NCSC, which helps organizations in the country that have suffered a breach to recover and promises confidentiality when doing so, is not a standalone organization. Rather, it's part of GCHQ, which is the UK's sister intelligence agency to the National Security Agency in the US. One upside to the British arrangement is that the NCSC's investigators are not only working with the latest intelligence on cyber attacks, but also seeing firsthand how victims are being targeted. Officials say that many of the significant information security attacks that they've been investigating can be traced to groups working for or on behalf of nation states. Here's the NCSC's head of incident response, who, since he's a working member of an intelligence agency, is identified only as Adrian, which of course may not be his real name. Hostile state cyber activity has developed and increased in profile this year. What might surprise people is the range of hostile states involved. We're currently investigating over 100 groups. Crime actors are also a big threat, and in some cases, we're seeing criminals and state actors working together. One of the biggest trends we've seen this year has been the increase in use of ransomware as a way to make money from attacks. We've also seen a growth in crypto mining, where attackers effectively piggyback on another computer's processing power to look for and confirm cryptocurrency transactions. We're seeing a rise in that because our adversaries realize there's an increased use of electronic currencies that they can make money from. To better defend organizations in the UK, in 2016, the government launched what it calls Active Cyber Defense. The program is meant to automate, as much as possible, cyber defense. To date, it's only been used for government domains, but NCSC says it wants to push it into all critical sector industries. Active Cyber Defense has multiple components. It includes scanning websites for common vulnerabilities and creating an easy-to-digest report about what needs to be fixed. It also uses protective DNS to monitor for spoof sites, as well as to remove phishing sites. Finally, it attempts to block fake emails using DMARC. It's logged some notable success stories. In the past two years, NCSC says the proportion of the world's 
phishing sites that get hosted in the UK has fallen from 5.3% to 2.4%. In addition, NCSC helped to remove nearly 140,000 phishing sites operated in the UK, as well as 14,000 sites worldwide that spoofed UK government websites. Beyond helping organizations that suffer a cyber attack to recover, NCSC also offers more prescriptive advice. For example, what questions should boards of directors be asking their CISOs? The organization is also behind a UK government push to improve the security of internet-connected consumer devices. It's released a new code of practice that outlines 13 guidelines that manufacturers of IoT devices for consumers should implement into their product's design to ensure that they keep consumers safe. It includes such things as the secure storage of personal data, regular software updates to make sure devices are protected, as well as never using default passwords to help prevent attackers from remotely compromising and turning loads of these devices into a botnet army, as we saw with the Mirai botnet in 2016. While the code of practice is voluntary, already technology vendors HP and Centrica Hive have committed to follow the guidelines. While that initiative alone won't fix the horrible security found in so many consumer IoT devices, it's yet one more demonstration of the way that the UK government's incident response team is helping to better secure not just British organizations, but also individuals. For ISMG, I'm Matthew Schwartz. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. Building on the success of the NIST cybersecurity framework, the National Institute of Standards and Technology is in the early stages of developing a privacy framework. The effort kicked off this week with a public workshop in Austin, Texas. I spoke with Naomi Lefkowitz, Senior Privacy Policy Advisor at NIST's Information Technology Lab, who's leading the project, and asked her firstly, how is the cybersecurity framework being used as a template. Here's Naomi. Well, certainly um, we are looking to the process that we uh, conducted with the cybersecurity framework in terms of this is a, a voluntary tool and, uh, and so really has to meet the needs of organizations or uh, they're not going to adopt it. And so, so the role that NIST really took in terms of developing the cybersecurity framework uh, was really a convening role and helping uh, bring together the ideas and, and concepts of organizations. And, and so we've seen some really successful uptake on the cybersecurity framework. So can uh, really aspire to that for the, for the privacy framework. So very much looking to the process as a model. Um, I, you know, I think other aspects we don't have any preconceived ideas at this point. Going back to the point I just made about this has to be uh, a tool that meets organizations' needs. So we have to, you know, find that path. But uh, want certain, we're certainly thinking about certain characteristics or attributes of what will make a successful framework and thinking about this as a, a communication tool that can be accessible not only to privacy professionals, but non-privacy professionals, senior management who may not be steeped in all the privacy terminology. Also, things that are very important to, uh, to economic growth is 
the ability of organizations to innovate uh, and uh, on products and services, uh, and and so we want to both support that ability, but also uh, enable organizations to demonstrate uh, strong privacy protections. And so, to sort of have both of those elements, uh, we are looking at this as you know a, a risk-based um, and outcome-based uh, approach to uh, to the to the framework. So this is not government coming to tell you how to do privacy, but rather, you know, helping to coordinate the outcomes, set the outcomes, and let organizations figure out the best way to get to those privacy outcomes. I also asked Naomi whether there was a shift in public perception of privacy in the wake of recent breaches such as Equifax and Cambridge Analytica, and whether the framework would address a desire for better consumer control of where their personal data resides. Here's Naomi again. I do think that, you know, those are some interests that both uh, consumers have and that organizations may want to understand better how to develop their products and services in a way that helps users and consumers have uh, more control. And so those are the kinds of outcomes that we could help to capture in a framework and let organizations figure out whether they are, you know, have the types of products or services or have the use cases that can support those kinds of outcomes. So we would look at this framework as, as hopefully having sort of a comprehensive set of outcomes, but recognizing that particularly when it comes to privacy and um, processing of data, that there are, you know, a wide variety of, of, of scenarios. And so the goal would be to have organizations be able to find something for themselves. And any organization could find something for themselves in this document, but that they don't necessarily have to achieve every outcome because that might not match with the kinds of use cases that they have. Finally, yes, it's getting close to the midterms, as we are all well aware. And somewhat inevitably, this week, news broke of voter registration data for 35 million U.S. voters being for sale online. Here's Jeremy Kirk, ISMG's Managing Editor, Security and Technology, to tell us what happened. U.S. voter registration records from 20 states have appeared for sale online. It's far from the largest leak of this kind of data, but it again highlights the loose controls around such records. Two security companies, Anomaly Labs and Intel 471, found the advertisement on a web forum where data is often traded. Anomaly says it has reviewed a sample of the data and believes it to be valid. Despite containing potentially valuable personal information, voter registration records are among the least secure types of data. Laws across the 50 U.S. states vary in relation to access and the use of voter data. All but 11 states allow some public access to electoral rolls. All states also do allow political parties and candidates to have access to the records. That means there are innumerable potential points of compromise. Also, a long run of leaks and breaches have already exposed most data for registered voters in the U.S. Still, the person who is advertising the record says he or she has access to weekly updates. Given that the U.S. midterm elections are a little over three weeks away, it would mean portions of the data could have been updated recently. The advertiser contends the information includes phone numbers, full addresses, and full names, among other data. 
The highest listed price is $12,500 for Wisconsin's 6 million voter registration records. It isn't clear why that batch is the most expensive. But in presidential election years, Wisconsin is a key state because winning its electoral college vote can help push a candidate towards a successful nomination. Louisiana's records are advertised at $5,000, the second highest of all of the states. The advertisement says 3 million records are available. Anomaly Labs estimates the total number of records at 35 million, which, while that's nothing to sniff at, would still put this leak well behind preceding ones. The mother of all voter leaks came from a company called Deep Root Analytics. In June 2017, the company said it took full responsibility for exposing 198 million records online for up to two weeks. And in 2015, 191 million U.S. voter registration records were leaked by an entity that was never actually identified. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. That's it for this week's ISMG Security Report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Nick Holland. Catch you next time.